Moses, the Mosaic Covenant. So if you have your Bible, open up with us to Exodus chapter 20. And Greg is going to read for us the whole chapter here. This will be the Ten Commandments plus a little bit right after that. And then we will begin to uh, segue from Abraham into the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai. You want me to pray after that too? Sure. All right. Exodus chapter 20. Beginning in verse number one. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible passage of scripture. Uh, that we have just read and considered when you gave uh, these Ten Commandments, these Ten Words uh, to uh, the people of Israel. Uh, Lord, it filled them with fear uh, because you were speaking to them, telling them uh, what you desired of them. Um, And Lord, we know that there is so much contained in these words and in the whole covenant that surrounds these words. And Lord, so we pray for your help in these next few minutes today. And uh, next week as well, that uh, you'll help Mark and I unpack this in a way that is faithful to the text, that is helpful for us in our everyday life, and that is ultimately exalting to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you look again on the screen here, we've got the six covenants that we are arguing for and trying to explain in this series. And we just wrapped up the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise that he would bless all nations through the offspring of Abraham and that he would give Abraham's offspring a land and blessing. And now we are moving forward in redemptive history to the uh, Mosaic Covenant. 
And then later, Lord willing, we'll get to the Davidic covenant and then the new covenant in, in Christ. So just, just to clear up any confusion, this can be confusing because we use different names to describe the same thing, and that can become very confusing. So there are at least four names by which we call this covenant. It's called the Mosaic Covenant because Moses was the head of Israel at the time in which the covenant was inaugurated, so that makes sense. It's also called the covenant at Sinai because guess where they were? They were at the base of Mount Sinai when Moses went up the mountain and got the tablets uh, from the Lord written with the finger of God. It's also called the covenant with Israel, understandably, because Moses was representing the nation of Israel. So it's the covenant with Israel, and the New Testament calls it two things, the Old Covenant and the First Covenant. So Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7 calls it both the Old Covenant and the First Covenant, and then it calls our covenant the New Covenant and the Second Covenant, is how the author of Hebrews describes that covenant. Just, just you know this, but the word covenant, the old word is testament, and that's where we get the name Old Testament and New Testament. It means Old Covenant and New Covenant. And the Old Testament, that title that we give to the whole Old Testament, is really referring to the Mosaic Covenant, mm -hmm. which dominates the Old Testament. But it's not the first covenant in the Old Testament. It's not the only covenant in the Old Testament. Uh, but it is the dominant co covenant that runs through much of the Old Testament history. So those four different names all refer to the same covenant, which we're going to be calling today probably all of those things, but the Mosaic yeah. Covenant, probably most, most familiar. And just to keep the kingdom through, so our, our, our series is sort of following this idea of kingdom through covenant. So God's kingdom is going to come through his unfolding of his promises or his covenants with his people that come through redemptive history. And in this new section where we are with the Mosaic covenant, God's people are the nation of Israel. That is very clear. God's place, no longer Eden, not yet the new creation. God's place is Canaan, the promised land during this time of redemptive history? And is God's rule going to work now in the nation? Yes, it's coming through God's 10 words, His 10 commandments, and followed by all the laws of the Torah. I think it's what, 613 or whatever, Something they've like that, counted yeah. the, the, the number of laws. Uh, hundreds of laws come with the Mosaic Covenant. So that's God's rule, His kingly rule being exercised through His law. And the people are promised that they can experience God's blessing both by God's grace and as God enables them to obey, they will experience the blessing that God holds out for them in the covenant. If they disobey, they're going to experience the curse. And you, spoiler alert, uh, I don't want to ruin this for you if this is your first time through the Bible, but it does not go well. It does not go well for the nation of Israel after hundreds of years of rebellion. And so here are some just big points that we want to kind of walk through. It's going to be a little bit, we're going to be jumping in different directions, but here, here, here are four kind of major ideas for today, not to just drown us in ideas here or thoughts as we jump in, but here are four thoughts to kind of get our bearings. The Mosaic Covenant, number one, is distinct from, but in continuity with, the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, we already, maybe you're like me, I'm already confused. What, what, is, what does that mean? So, the, we're not saying that the Mosaic Covenant is the same exact thing as the Abrahamic Covenant because, just again, Spoiler alert for the New Testament, Paul will tell us very clearly that the Mosaic Covenant served a temporary purpose, and it was meant to imprison, remember Galatians 3, it imprisoned everything under sin so that, like a tutor, it would lead us to Christ and we would be justified by faith. So one massive purpose of the Mosaic Law was to show you you can't keep it. That was one massive purpose for this law, was to say, on your own, you will never be able to do this. Christ will come and he will keep it for you. He, he will redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us and by obeying the law perfectly. 
But Paul distinguishes that covenant, therefore, from the Abrahamic covenant. Number two, it is temporary. The Mosaic covenant is temporary and ultimately leads us to Christ, as I was describing there. Number three, it is rooted in God's gracious salvation. Its continued blessings are conditioned on Israel's obedience. Greg, just a quick, this is, this is a confusing one. It's yeah. rooted in God's gracious salvation, but there's also an element of conditionality. The people yes. must obey the covenant to receive blessing. Can you just give us a word about what that means? Yeah, I'll, I'll tie it to a kind of a larger, larger issue. There, there's a debate, and we've mentioned this before, kind of amongst you know, theologians and all that, about how do you understand these different covenants in the Bible. Some will say, you know, the, the categories of conditional and unconditional are helpful, but we have to be careful not to like apply them in like a blanket fashion to where we actually ignore what's going on in the text. Um, like, you know, some will argue the Abrahamic covenant's completely unconditional. Like there's no conditions for, uh, for Abraham and his seed whatsoever. But in reality, we saw it's, it's, it's got unconditional elements and it's got conditional elements because Abraham still had to obey. And God even says in Genesis 22, what? Because you have obeyed, you're going to get all these blessings. And so it was unconditional in that, that God's the one who initiated it. God took the, you know, walked the smoking fire pot and the burning torch. He walked both ways between the, the animals. So he took the whole of the responsibility on himself, but that didn't relieve Abraham of his responsibility. But we see it even more in this Mosaic covenant. And, and what I'm going to say, once you see it, it, it shouldn't be like overly surprising. I'm just hopefully just drawing attention to it in a way maybe, maybe is not as familiar as we're used to. But the, the Mosaic covenant is unconditional in the sense that God made this covenant with Israel sheerly by grace, sure, like completely by grace. There were no conditions that Israel had to meet in order to be in this covenant with God. God was the initiator. God was the one who did it. He's the one who set it up. He's the one who put all the provisions in place. And so it was unconditional in that sense. Israel didn't earn this covenant. They didn't you know, deserve this covenant. They didn't merit it in any way. It was unconditional. Now, the conditional part comes in is when God, as we'll see, tells them, if you want to continue to enjoy the blessings that I've promised, you have to obey. Because, I mean, most of you are familiar with this. It's, it's loaded with, if you obey this blessing and this blessing and, and, and all these good things are going to happen. But if you don't, if you forsake the Lord, if you turn away from him, if you worship other gods, curses. Now, again, that's oversimplifying this a little bit, but that's essentially what it is. And the blessing or the curse that Israel is to experience is going to be contingent or condition, conditional upon their obedience. So that's what we mean. It's rooted in God's gracious, gracious salvation, but it's dependent in its fulfillment on Israel's obedience or disobedience. That's good. And let me just add a clarifying point here. I don't think this will be super controversial, but sometimes people do get this wrong. And I think it's a big error. The Mosaic covenant does not teach salvation by works. Even in the Old Testament, no one was offered the, the, the deal of salvation by works in this sense. That's not what's being offered here on Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses was not saved by works. I believe he was saved, but not by works. He was trusting in the coming one. And you look at Hebrews 11. Remember the hall of fame of faith? Remember Hebrews 11? All those Old Testament characters, yes, they had works. They showed their faith by their actions, but how were they all saved? By faith, they took kings. By faith, they took armies. By faith, Noah built the ark, et cetera, et cetera. So Hebrews 11 makes it perfectly clear in the Old Testament, even during the, the Mosaic Covenant, 
no one was saved by their works in some, some sort of raw legalism. Right. That is not what we're saying. And, and if you're wondering, here's where it gets a little tricky, and we will get to this, Lord willing, on a later week. Sometimes the way Paul will contrast works of the law with faith in Christ, you might get the impression from what Paul might write in, say, Galatians 3 or other parts of his writings that he is painting the Old Covenant as a salvation by works. But I think if you look at it carefully, you'll see that what Paul is actually doing there is not quite what it might seem at certain points. So that's for a conversation for another day. But let, but, me, let, me, let yeah. me point one more thing out. If you still uh, have Exodus 20 out in front of you, I mean, most of the time when we read the Ten Commandments, we start with the thou shalt or you shall have no other gods. But that's not how the Ten Commandments start. The Ten Commandments start in verse 1 and 2, okay? And this, this preamble, if you will, is so important to what's going on here. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so the whole covenant, the whole Mosaic covenant is based on God's salvation of Israel from its slavery in Egypt and into the promised land that uh, he was going to take them. And so even their obedience and, and all that they have to do is rooted first in the grace of God and in the salvation that God brings. Now, the covenant itself, like we said, is conditional. The new covenant that we're in, you know, Jesus meets the conditions for us, and we'll talk more about that, but the pattern is the same. God saves a people, brings those people to himself, and then gives them this covenant that says, this is how you are to live as my people. They didn't become his people and then get saved. He saved them to make them his people, and then he gave them the Ten Commandments and the whole law covenant. And so Israel here is supposed to respond not to earn God's favor, but because God has already saved and redeemed them, and they are to, to obey this law out of gratitude, out of joy, as a way of showing that they belong to him. Yeah, and I, it's not identical, but you see how Exodus is, is, in one sense, you could break the book in half. There's different ways you could structure it. The first 19 chapters is God rescuing, redeeming them out of slavery. And then from chapter 20 to 40, there's a lot of instructions and rules. And the idea is God saves you by grace. He chose the people, unconditional election. He chose Israel without any, anything good in them. He chose them, saved them, redeemed them by the blood of the lamb, led them out, and then he gives them his laws. And it's, it's not that dissimilar from how Paul's letters are often structured, right? You, you know this, right? The first 11 chapters of Romans is how God has saved you. And then what happens in chapter 12? Therefore, by the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And then you have chapters of instructions. Ephesians, you know, Ephesians 1 through 3, there's almost no commands in 1 through 3. It's about how God chose you and redeemed you and saved you. And then chapter 3 turns that corner, right? And what do you have all of a sudden? You've got a list of commands, how husbands and wives should relate to each other, how children should obey their parents, and on and on and on. So God redeems you by grace, then he expects in response an obedient life. And that, that's, that's true in both, in both places. So let's jump in here to this first one in a little more detail. The Mosaic Covenant is distinct from, but in continuity with the Abrahamic Covenant. We're gonna jump into that first one here and let's just look back to the Abrahamic Covenant itself. Remember R.C. Sproul's favorite verse? The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passed between the animal pieces as God made a promise to keep the Abrahamic Covenant. But look, within the Abrahamic Covenant, in Genesis 15, do we get signs of what's gonna happen in Moses' day? Yes, look at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Verse 16, 
And they shall come back here, the promised land, in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So do you see here, Abraham's covenant is pointing towards what's going to happen in the day of Moses through the Exodus event. So let's talk about the Exodus for a moment here. Before we get to Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 and 20, we have the Exodus. The Exodus sets the stage for the Mosaic covenant at Sinai, and this is important. It gives us what? It gives us the most dramatic and the greatest redemptive event in all of Old Testament history. So let's talk about this for a second. Why there even was 400 years in Egypt that precedes the Mosaic Covenant. Here's a quote by Graham Goldsworthy. We've quoted him some already. Very helpful. He wrote a book called According to Plan, which Greg and I just talked earlier today. It had a huge impact on us a number of years ago. This is one of the early books we read on these kinds of things, and it was very helpful. Graham Goldsworthy, According to Plan. Here's what he says. Just follow this thought here. The semi-nomadic wanderings of Abraham and his descendants in Canaan did not serve God's purposes of revelation fully enough. Throughout the Old Testament, possession of the land is presented as a shadow of the future reality of living as God's people in his kingdom. Now follow this. But it provided no vivid pattern of the necessary route by which any child of God enters the kingdom. For this, some graphic and unmistakable experience of redemption from an alien power was necessary. Now, can I put that just in maybe easier language, I hope, if that's a little confusing. Here's what I think he's saying. The Old Testament Exodus event, is it foreshadowing what Christ is going to do? Is Jesus going to bring us out of bondage to slavery, to sin, and deliver us through the blood of the Lamb? And is he going to bring us through the waters of baptism and through 40 years in the wilderness heading towards a new creation? Is this supposed to be a picture of what Christ will do? Yes, it's foreshadowing that. It's typologically foreshadowing and predicting what Jesus will do. Well, the Lord wanted a perfect picture, a great picture of the redemptive work of his son. And so he sent Israel to Egypt in a famine 400 years ahead of time. And he allowed them to be enslaved by an Egyptian pharaoh who did not know Joseph and did not care about the people. And he threatened the people under that. Why did God bring about all those terrible events? Because God wanted to show the Old Testament people what he was gonna do through his son one day and to give us a vivid picture of redemption. And so he wanted a graphic and unmistakable experience of redemption from an alien power to show us what redemption and entering God's kingdom will look like for all of God's true people. And the Exodus is the foreshadowed picture of what Christ will come to do. Does that make, I hope that makes some sense. So that, that's what I think the Lord is doing here. Well, can I, can I mention, yeah, we talked in. about this, uh, maybe it was the first day, uh, it was earlier on, um, how, and I think I just lost my train of thought with this, I'm going to see if I can make it work, but how, you know, the whole Old Testament is, is getting us ready, it's getting us ready for Jesus. Um, every, every bit of it, like even the events themselves, which are real historical events, happened in space, time, and history with real people, and they mattered for that time. But in each of those events, each of those people, or each of, yeah, each, each of those peoples and all the structures and, and everything, it's because of the fact that in God's mind and God's plan, Jesus was a certainty, he shaped all of this Old Testament stuff to get us ready for Jesus. And there's, this is the element I wanted to mention. Like, and you, you said this so well earlier on, it, it has to do with, you know, Adam and Eve sin in the garden, right? They're, 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 they know they've sinned, they're in shame, God's coming to them, you know, why not just complete salvation right then? Because we, we are so slow to learn in our sin, 
It took a long time for God to teach us everything we needed so that we could understand what Jesus did. It didn't just start with, okay, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Adam, don't you feel great about that? Mm -hmm. We have no idea why, who's Jesus and what's a cross and why was that necessary? And so through everything that happens in the Old Testament, God is getting everything in place so that we can understand not just what Jesus did, but why it was necessary. Like, again, why the graphic picture of the Exodus? Well, because that's, sin is even worse than slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. Like, it literally will cost our souls for eternity if we're not rescued out of it. But we get this picture of, man, it, it, we need a dramatic rescue. Like, we cannot free ourselves. We can't fix what's wrong. And I mean, you know, if we're, if we're going to be honest, we're like the Israelites. We keep pining away for what we had in the slavery. And so we need somebody who can rescue us completely and can do it in, the, in, in a complete way. And that's exactly what God does at the Exodus. But it's teaching us something deeper than that. So that when Christ comes and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, realizing, oh my goodness, the only way Israel got out was because a death took place. But in this case, we learn, you know, it had to be the death, not of an animal, but of God's own son. Um, and, and so all, all of this that Goldsworthy is getting at is helping us see, I think, like you were saying, that we, we couldn't understand all this at once. God is preparing the way for Jesus to come so that when he comes, we have the terminology, we have the categories, we have the framework in place to make sense of all that Jesus did. Oh, absolutely. So just real quick, the themes that we keep thinking about as we, as we look to Christ here in these chapters, let's just remember this. Israel, the nation, is being pictured as a new Adam figure. I keep talking about this. Did we see that Noah is a kind of new Adam figure? Did we see that? Yes. Did we see that Abraham in his calling was like a new Adam figure? Yes. Now, Israel as a nation is considered as a new Adam figure. I'll try to prove this quickly here. Exodus 1, if you can turn to Exodus chapter 1 in your Bible, uh, verse 1. The sons, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Then it names them all, all the sons. Verse 7 of Exodus 1. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Does this remind us of Adam and Eve? Absolutely. The language is unmistakable and is now Israel being called to do what Adam failed to do. Are they now this new Adam figure being fruitful and multiplying in the land of Egypt? Yes, they are, just like God promised. Skip to chapter 4 of Exodus and look at verse 22, Exodus 4:22. The Lord says, he's talking to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. Now look at this, is amazing language here. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Uh, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, do you see Israel as a nation is being called God's son? This is so important. Can you see the link between Adam and Jesus? Adam is called, look, look, look at Luke 3, the end of Jesus' genealogy. The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is called the son of God because God directly created him uh, in Luke 3. So son of God language is tracing the storyline from Adam through Israel, right? Israel is the firstborn son of God. So from Adam, who's the son of God, through Israel, the son of God, to the true son of God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. You can see how the entire biblical storyline is being held together in this amazing way through God's son. And then we find out that God will give his one and only son. 
uh, for our sins. We're also going to see the Davidic king is called the son. Yes. Um, and that's going to be an important link as well. I yes, think. David and Solomon road, yeah. are going to be called God's son. He is a father to them. That, that theme traces right into the son, Jesus himself. So let, let me quote Goldsworthy again. Pharaoh makes Israel slaves of the state. That's Exodus 1. Once again, now, now this is the, te- the tension that runs through the Bible. Once again, the reality of the promises of God seems to recede out of reach. Certainly, Abraham's descendants are now many, but they are in the wrong place and under the wrong rule. To all outward appearances, Israel's God is powerless to keep faith with his chosen and unable to prevent foreign gods from exercising rule over his people. Do you see? This is the tension and the drama of the Bible. God makes promises that look impossible to keep, and the tension builds as the enemies grow stronger, and then God, against all apparent human chance, but of course he can always work in his sovereignty, against all human uh, observation, God makes his promises come true anyway. So the theological meaning of the captivity in Egypt lies in its opposition to the covenant God made with Israel but the covenant he's made with Abraham and to Israel. The captivity in Egypt expresses the ultimate challenge to the covenant promises. The people of the covenant are shown to be subjects of alien powers in a land not their own. Now, for the sake of time, we'll just really quickly mention, you know this chapter probably. The king wants Israel to be uh, in trouble here. Verse, Verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. Verse 11, therefore, they sent taskmasters over Israel to afflict them with heavy burdens. Verse 12, the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Just notice that. The more Pharaoh oppresses the people, the more God makes them multiply. This is, by the way, universal application of this text. Spurgeon preached an amazing sermon on that verse. It's incredible. He talked about how Christians always multiply under affliction. Spiritually, we always grow under the rod of Satan's wrath, right? When Pharaoh brings down his worst on Israel, God produces his best. He, he multiplies the people. So no matter what Pharaoh does to stop God's promise, God is making the people be blessed. He is multiplying them. You know what happens. He tries to kill the male babies. The, the Shifra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives, save them. God blesses the women. And then Moses is born, chapter 2. We won't even read the story here. You know, he's preserved. Pharaoh's daughter finds him in the basket and saves his life. Listen to Goldsworthy uh, summarizing here. The theological significance of Moses' deliverance lies not in a general providential care for little children, but in the overruling of the powers opposed to God's kingdom so that they cannot hurt the one chosen to mediate God's plan of salvation. So Moses is being chosen by God, raised up as a redeemer. And let's just look at a couple verses here in Exodus 2 that I just think are wonderful. Listen to this. You see the tenderness of God here. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God, I love this, and God heard their groaning, And God remembered what? His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Some Bibles will paraphrase that and say he knew their struggles or their suffering, but I kind of like just the literal rendering. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's what it says. Literally, God just, God knew. He saw and he knew. This is always true for all of us, 
going through suffering in this life, God always sees, God always knows, and his knowing matters because his knowing makes a difference. It's not knowing from afar. It's not sentimental feelings. It's the God who sees and knows and therefore acts for the good of his people. Any other thoughts here before we get to Moses as an adult? Well, it's, it just it adds a very personal connection, I think, from, from God to his people because we do have that tendency to want to think he's distant, he's not close, he's not involved, he doesn't care. I mean, even though we know Scripture says the opposite of that. We, if you're like me, I have that tendency to want to think he's more distant than he is. And you, you think about it, if you're going through something hard and you have a close friend, you know, who's, who's been through rough times and you start sharing, all they have to do is like, look, I know. And you know, that's when the tears start flowing, you get a big hug and you cry because you know that they know what you're going through. They get it. They understand your struggle. And I think that's what God wants to communicate here. It's like, he is not far away from, he is not indifferent to the struggles that we're going through. He never is. Sometimes it may feel that way, but he's not. And that's when we come back to, um, to what we read here when it says, and God knew. God knows, and he will act in the right time. He, he's never, you know, what again, I'll say a wizard's never late. He's never early. He arrives precisely when he means to. That's what God does. He always arrives right on time, Okay. And so that's why just wait in patience. If you are going through a hard time, wait in patience. God is not oblivious. God has not forgotten you. God is not indifferent to your struggles. He is going to work. He is going to act. Trust that because he knows where you are and what you're going through. Yes, and, and that's very good. Not, not to be silly here, but uh, I, I, once Thanksgiving comes, I accept Christmas music with a glad and open heart, okay? But before Thanksgiving, it's a little hard for me. Uh, but once Thanksgiving comes, I'm ready for the Christmas music. I'm ready for the lights. I'm ready for all the stuff set up in the house. I love all, the, I love all that stuff. But now I have a, this is, you don't care to know this, but I have a radio alarm clock, okay? That's you were wondering this morning. You woke up, you said, I wonder what, what kind of alarm clock other people use at our church. So I, I use a radio alarm clock. And uh, mine is set to whatever station it is. I don't even know if I could say what it was, but it's some, some Christian station. And, and now they're playing the Christmas music when I wake up. And some of those songs not as good. Some of them quite good. Some of them quite good that they pick. And I'm not trying to be silly, but in all seriousness, when it says here, God knows, the, the Christmas season is obviously where we focus on the incarnation. But you've got to understand, on this side of the incarnation, we have no excuse to not believe that God truly knows what it's like to be one of us, to, to enter into human flesh. So as we think about Christmas songs, I know we can have warm, sentimental feelings because of all the things that we see, and that's great. I, I enjoy that part of the year. I love this time of year. But Let's not miss out on the fact that the incarnation is telling us something about God's care and sympathy for us. Christ can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he took on all of that. So if God knew then, God can certainly say that he knows now what it is like uh, to enter into human flesh. So again, as we talk about Christ here, second point we want to look at for a moment is the Mosaic Covenant is temporary and it ultimately leads us to Christ. So just Exodus 12, if you can turn there, I know we're having to skip lots of stuff just for the sake of time. We're we're going to have to really cover the entire Bible by the end of the series, so we can't go too, we can't slow down too much. So Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13, this is right before the Passover, and this is a wonderful set of texts here. Look at verse 12 of Exodus 12. The Lord says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. 
When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God is going to do what only he can do. I, I, we won't spend long on this, but I just have to mention this. You probably know this by now, uh, but God is essentially taking the Egyptian gods, and Fred, you've written a really helpful paper on this when you're in seminary. Uh, should ask Fred for a copy. It's very, very helpful. But essentially what God is doing is he's taking all the Egyptian, all the most well-known Egyptian gods, and God is beating each Egyptian god in its own game. So God will, God, you know, they worship the sun and God turns the lights off and they worship frogs for, I believe, fertility. Is that right, Papa Fred? And they, God multiplies the frogs. And the Nile River was worshiped as a source of life because it literally did. It, when it flooded its banks every year, it provided crops and vegetation for them to survive. And God turns the Nile to blood and kills all the fish in the Nile. And then ultimately, Pharaoh himself and the firstborn in the family, the king himself was worshiped oftentimes as divinities. And God kills the firstborn in Pharaoh's own household, the next in line to be king. God is, is systematically showing that Yahweh, the God of the slaves, is more powerful than the mightiest gods of the mightiest nation in the world because their gods are not gods. There's demonic presence behind their gods, but there are no real Egyptian gods. Only Yahweh is creator. And God he executes judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And the final judgment comes through the the, the death of the firstborn, and the Lord provides the death of the lamb, the spotless lamb, no bones broken in the body. Again, obviously pointing toward and foreshadowing the work of Christ. Can I, can I make one more yep. point? And I've, I've made this before. I, I, I want to just say it because it, 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 when you start to see, when we talk about the Bible like being Christ-centered and it's getting us ready for Jesus, um, if, we, if we're careful to read, we will notice things, and we're going to see big picture things. Sometimes, even in the midst of a familiar story, though, we might see something that is not that that's there that we just don't see in Exodus 12. Okay, if you, if you're there, look look at this. So we read 12 and 13 talking about when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague will you know no plague will befall you. God gets a little more specific though. Okay, there's a destroying angel that goes out who is inflicting this death, this plague on the people. Look at verse um, 22, and we're going to read through verse 20, just 22 and 23, and notice the little more. Uh, emphasis that, that Moses gives here. It says, he says, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And lis listen to the distinction here. When he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So it's not just that God himself sees the blood and skips over the house. The passing over is God himself hovering over the house, telling the destroyer, you can't come in here. Whoa, that's amazing to me. God is identifying personally with each house with the, where the blood is. I mean, that, that, I don't know, that just gets me really excited because you think about what happens in the cross. God, through the blood of the lamb, personally identifying with you when your hope is in Jesus. I mean, it's like God himself is saying, death can't touch you. The grave can't get you. Why? Because you are mine. And so even here, like, I, 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 that makes me want to stand up and start shouting or something. Um, because that is just so neat because we typically think he just went over the house because the blood was there. No, his passing over is his personal presence over the house saying to the destroying angel, you are not allowed in here. This one's mine. I just think that's amazing. Oh, amen. That's, that's excellent. Uh, let's look at Exodus chapter 19. So we'll get to Mount Sinai here. Exodus chapter 19. 
Just read a couple verses. Verse 2, they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, these next two verses are critical for understanding really much of the rest of the Old Testament and even some of the New Testament here. Verse 5, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you, Israel as a nation, shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let me just take a moment on this here just to say a word about this. So the Lord has his treasured possession. He chose Israel not because they were more in number than all the people. They were not. He chose them because he chose them. Deuteronomy. He he loved them because he loved them. He, He picked them. He chose them as his treasured possession, and he has a job for them to do. And this is a glorious job. And this really matters because I'm going to connect it to you and the church in just a second. So so right now, here's Israel's job. Kingdom of priests, holy nation. Here's the job. Israel was to live uh, separated and consecrated, right? Set apart from the world and consecrated, devoted to to God. Separation, consecration. And as Israel did this, this was going to affect every aspect of their lives. So this changed their diet right? All those strange food laws. They can't eat shellfish. They can't eat certain kinds of animals. They can't eat pigs and all other things like that. They, they are, they're, they're called to eat differently from the nations around them. They're called to dress differently, not to wear mixed fiber clothing and on and on and on, not to plant two kinds of seed in the same soil. They're, they're to plant in a way, do everything in a way that is different and distinct. So they are set apart and different from all the nations of the earth and their eating habits and how they do their farming and how they dress and how they worship. Everything is different from the other nations. And they're not just separated. They're also consecrated. They're devoted exclusively to one God, Yahweh, the the maker of heaven and earth. So they are here to become a holy or unique and set-apart nation. That's not it. It's not just, you know, holier than thou up on a hill hiding from everybody because I'm better than everyone else. That's not the picture. Kingdom of what? Priests. Priests have a special job in the nation of Israel that illustrate the job Israel had among all the nations. Israel as a nation was to be a priestly nation. What does that mean? The priest stands between the holy God and a sinful people, right? The priest stands like in that position between a holy God and a sinful people. And the priest represents God to a sinful people. And priests were actually required to be teachers in the Old Testament. They would teach God's rules and his his laws effectively. So Israel was to tell the nations the truth about God And they were to bring the nations to know the one true God. They were to be the ones who stand between God, Yahweh, and all the nations who are pagan. They were supposed to show the holiness and beauty of God, his law, his character, his attributes, by how they acted. Be holy for I am holy. Be faithful because I am faithful. Tell the truth because I am the truth. So as they represent that to the nations, the nations were to be streaming to Jerusalem, seeing how God blesses them, how distinct and different they are, how they worship this one true God, and the nations were to come to Israel and convert to worshiping Yahweh alone and become part of God. God's true people. That was, that was the picture. Now, Israel got close at times to doing this. Remember Solomon's reign when there was gold everywhere and silver was considered as useless as gravel. I love that verse. Remember that? Silver was everywhere. Solomon is reigning with all of his wisdom. He has many happy workmen. And what happens? The queen of 
Sheba comes from far away and she comes to visit and she says, not the half was told me of the greatness of this place and of your, of your wisdom and, and your honor and the, the riches and how happy your workmen are. She says, the spirit almost comes out of me. She almost faints out of the glory of Solomon's reign. And is God showing his glory through his son, Solomon? And is he displaying something of his holiness and his glory and his blessing to the world? And are the nations coming to Israel as a kingdom of priests and getting to know the one true God and getting closer to knowing that one God? Yes. And then Solomon becomes a new Adam who takes hundreds of wives, worships false gods, sets up Asherah poles all in the high hills in, in Israel, splits the kingdom after his death, and then you have chaos following, right? So we got close to these things, but then we, it fell apart. Now, now look at this. You don't have to turn there. Good if you wanted, but look, look here. New Testament. This is written to the church. This is written to you and me. But you, believers, Gentile and Jew in Christ, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see? Now we're going to talk about this way more in the future on what this means, but do you see this amazing job has been given to God's people, the church? In Christ, we are given this task that Israel had in the Old Testament, which is now we are the kingdom of priests. We are meant to be a holy nation, which is funny since Christians are in every nation. We aren't a literal ethnos. We aren't a literal ethnicity or a literal nation, but we are all over the world in all different ethnicities and different nations. But we are still called to do this thing of being a royal priesthood, uh, God's treasured possession, a people of his own possession, uh, chosen race. And what are we meant to do? We're meant to tell people the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. And, and Greg, could you say a word about this, this, this task that's been given to the church of us? You said, we're, it used to be a come and see religion in the Old yeah. Testament. Come, Queen of Sheba, and see. And now it's a what? It's a go and tell. But there's also more to it than that. Thoughts about yeah, that? Yeah, we Mark and I were talking about this um, as we were trying to, to get all this put together. Um, you know, Old Testament, obviously, Israel's in one place. They, they, the nation is landlocked, as it were. It doesn't, can't pick up and move. You know, it's not put it on an RV or on a trailer and you know, go to a different part of the world and show Israel and the temple. Um, no, Israel was landlocked. And so you have to wonder, you know, how, how is it that could it be come and see? You know, it's a little tiny place, um, not significant in terms of size, power, whatever, in comparison to other nations and kingdoms. But here's the thing, and this, this, we just attribute this to the wisdom and plan of God. Um, where Israel was located on the far eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, it was the one place that if you were going to go from Egypt to any land beyond or from those lands beyond down into Egypt and Africa, the only way you're going to get there is through the land of Israel. Because you got sea, or if you're looking, it's got sea this way, desert this way, and then you got little teeny tiny Israel as kind of the channel through which people are going to go. And so how is it then that the nations were going to see in that day? They were going to see because if they wanted to do commerce, if they wanted to do trade, they had to go through Israel. And, you know, again, they didn't have, inter, you know, uh, interstate highways and planes and all that. They had to walk or be on horse. And so it's going to take them a little while to get through. And as they're going through, what's going to happen? They're going to see a people who doesn't eat like them. They're going to see a people who doesn't dress like them. They're going to see a people with a God that's not like the gods they worship. And so as they're going through, they are going to be exposed to what? To the truth of who God is, to what it looks like to be in a covenant relationship with God. They're going to see it. Um, and, and, you know, I was telling Mark, like this, 
This I'd never really made sense of when in other places it talks about the laws for like the alien, the resident alien, the sojourner and all of that. I was like, why would, why would anybody come? Well, because everybody knew about Israel. People were constantly going through both ways because of commerce and all that. And so people were going to hear about it. Why would people want to go to Israel? Because they'd heard about its God. They'd seen how it was different and they wanted to go be a part of that. Um, and that, that just, that was incredible to me. But here's the thing, going to set 1 Peter 2. And again, I know we're going we're gonna to unpack this more later, but think about it. What is the church referred to in, um, in, in 1 Peter 2 a little bit earlier? Like believers were stones yep. being built into a temple. And remember, the temple is where the presence of God is, where the glory of God dwells. Think about Ephesians 2. We're being built together into a holy temple in the Lord, into a dwelling place of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, the temple was a, an architectural, physical building that could only be in one place. So in order to see the glory of God, in order to behold the presence of God and all that, you had to go to Israel, specifically to Jerusalem, to that temple. Now that Christ has come and the church is that temple, this church is not a physical temple. It's a spiritual temple made up of people like you and me. And so, yes, we go and tell but as we're going and telling, what are we also saying? Come and see. Come and see what? The glory of God in his new temple, in the church. Like the one place on planet earth where the glory of God shines the brightest is right here with us today. We are the temple of God where the presence of God dwells. And the world should come in and they should see something different. They should come in and they should see a people devoted to God, devoted to one another, walking in the ways of God, you know, showing the love of God, forgiveness and obedience and all that goes into that. Like they come to, yeah, they still come to the temple of God, but the temple of God is no longer located in one particular place. It's spread out throughout the entire globe in every individual believer and in local communities like ours here at North Avenue Church in local churches. And that's, that's amazing to think about. And if anything pushes us to consider, why is church health so important? Why is getting doctrine right so important? Why, you know, the way we try to do things here, why is that so important? Because the glory of God is at stake. Like if we get it right, we show the glory of God rightly. If we don't do it right, then we are diminishing what the world can see of who God is and of who Jesus is. And so that's why getting church right matters. That's why we should be meticulous and make sure that everything we do, everything we say is rooted in what Scripture says about the church because the glory of God is in this church, in this temple, and we want the world to see it as clearly as possible. Uh, amen. I want, I want to close right there. This is also in 1 Peter 2. This is verse 12 on the screen. This is right with what Greg's saying. Talking to the church, the living temple, right? The living stones of the temple. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Greg, can you close us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, it is amazing all that you have given us in this, this treasure, this book. Um, when you teach us about who we are, Lord, uh, knowing that, that what you have done in the past is meant to affect us today and help us even understand who we are as Christians and who we are as a church. But Lord, we are thankful for the very real history that we're learning about um, in, in the Old Testament and your amazing delivery of Israel from Egypt and its slavery there. And Lord, as we're considering this covenant that you are going to make with Israel through Moses, God, and, and all that that means for Israel and for the world and even what it means for us today, Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity 
to, uh, to understand these things better. And I pray, Lord, that we would um, and that we'd continue to think about these things, Lord, beyond even where we are right now, uh, out into the week. Lord, help us go back and, and read these scriptures and, and, and dwell there a little bit, Lord, that we might be able to mine all the riches that you have for us. God, thank you uh, for this church. And Lord, as we go into our main assembly uh, to sing and pray and hear your word, Lord, please just have your hand on our, our service and on our time. And we pray that Christ would be exalted above all. And we ask this in his name. Amen.